0: morning, church. Good morning. We're beginning um, an emphasis with this new series. This year, last year, we talked a lot about the character of God. That was sort of our emphasis for 2015. In 2016, we're going to put our emphasis on leading a God-directed, Life leading a God directed life, and we're going to be talking uh, at the beginning here. uh, This first several weeks, we're going to be uh, working our way through the book of Daniel. Um, We look at Daniel in a prophetic sense a lot, but I'd like to look at Daniel not only as the, the prophet, the apocalyptic prophet that he is, and that he will be there will be things we'll talk about in that realm, but Daniel, the person his life experience, what was going on with him while he was in uh, what I think for any of us would be a crisis in his life, and how he handled it, and how he led his life. Daniel is one of the few people in Scripture, Jesus is the only other one, that nothing negative is mentioned about. There is no negative statement about Daniel in all the Scriptures. In that reality, that's a pretty rare thing. And yet he lived in a very difficult time. He, he endured some very difficult circumstances. The scripture still records nothing negative about the man. And so we're going to look at him at the beginning of this discussion of leading a God-directed life. But um, today we're going to take a broad perspective, kind of bring us from the, the, the broader historical perspective to the book of Daniel. So um, we're going to actually be mostly in Isaiah and Jeremiah today. Um, as we sort of move our way toward the book of Daniel and sort of get a set, get an understanding of the setting, we live in interesting times. Um, we live in times when we have the 24-hour news cycle constantly telling us of all the frightening things that are happening in the world, and there are a lot of frightening things happening in our world. What I would like for us to understand is that no matter the things that are happening in our world, like Daniel, we go none of the, we face none of these things alone. Amen. So. I want to start out by saying with Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, my yoke is easy. The God-directed life is the easy life. The God-directed life is the fulfilled life. The God-directed life is the blessed life. To live outside of God's direction is to struggle against all the things that happen in the world Alone. I often wonder when I'm in a hospital with someone. I've, I've been in the hospital many times with people who are passing away. And those who have faith lean hard into that faith. And I can see it in them and I can feel it in them. And you can tell by their family members. It's a different experience for them. Those who face death without faith face a much more difficult death. It's a much harder life to live a life outside God's direction. It's a much more difficult life outside of God's direction. Some of you know that by experience. Some of us have lived a life where we did not have God in our life and we know what it's like. And we know that it's better to be able at the end of the day to lay your burdens on him and let him take them from you. We know that when he says my yoke is easy, it's true because we've carried the other yoke before. Some of you have been blessed to walk in a God-directed life your entire life. Bless your parents, honor your parents, thank your parents for that gift. Wherever we are, I just want to assure you and remind you that God-directed life is an easier, more abundant, better life. He says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're going to bear a yoke. He's saying, come with me. I do most of the pulling. We're going to talk about obedience during this time. I want to establish the fact that you are saved by grace through faith. Correct. Is that what the Bible says? That is true for all of us. You are saved by grace through faith. We're going to be talking about obedience. God's direction is God's direction into things he's asking you to do. God directs us into a life that he's calling us to make changes in. God directs us into things that he wants to do for us. All of those things are questions about obedience. When you measure your faith, you measure it against obedience. Obedience is the means to faith, right? Right? How do you know if you have faith if God asks you to do something and you're not doing it? If God is asking you to do something and you are moving forward in what he's asking you to do, you know you have faith in God, right? It's true of your other relationships. Somebody you trust asks you to do something. You're much more likely to do it, right? Somebody you don't trust asks you to do something and you question, what is their motivation? Why are they wanting me to do this? What's going on? I don't have really a faith in that person that they're doing this for my benefit. They just want me to, want to use me. If your relationship with God has faith, obedience is a normal outgrowth because you trust him and he's calling you to do something that you believe is for your benefit. It's the means to faith. Saying yes to God grows your faith. It's a means to, to greater faith. It's also the measure of faith. You know exactly where your faith, faith stands when God puts you up against something you don't want to deal with. Right? God brings you up to something you don't want to deal with and you say no to God. You know exactly where the measuring line for your faith is. He keeps banging you up against that and you keep saying no, no, no. It's okay. He's going to say I'll I'll be back tomorrow with the same question. I'll be back tomorrow. We'll be talking about this again. We're not going to ever let this go because this is not for my benefit. It's for yours. And I'm trying to be a benefit and a blessing to you. And this is the next step. So we're just going to keep coming back to this. It wouldn't be great if we all just got it the first time. So often we come up against things that we keep battling and battling and battling. God keeps bringing it to our attention. We keep struggling. He keeps bringing it to our attention. We keep struggling over and over again. That is the life of faith. You know where the measuring line of your faith is when you get to that point where God says, do this. And you say, no, 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 wait, wait. Not that one. I've been carefully keeping you out of that business for a long time. Why are we going there today? right? We know the measure of our faith when we hit the thing we don't want to do. God comes back the next day, offers the same relationship and the same question. Key to understanding. Key to understanding your relationship. God doesn't throw you out of your relationship that day. We're going to look at that and illustrate it in Hezekiah's life in a, little, in a, in a few minutes. But he doesn't kick you out of the relationship the day you come up against something where you say, God, I can't go there with you. He comes back and offers the same relationship the next day. In fact, he comes the next minute and offers the same relationship. Because you're saved by grace, not by meritorious behavior. Get these pictures straight, okay? However, if you look God in the face long enough and say no, eventually you will walk away. Nobody's thrown out of the family of God, but people do walk out of the family of God. Nobody's thrown out of the family. I do, do not believe that the Bible represents a yo-yo relationship where when you're always obedient, you're in his hand, and when you're out of obedience, you're away from him. And when you're back in obedience, you're in his hand, and when you're out of obedience, you're away from him. Most of us would spend most of our time away from him. And I don't think anyone would we get saved. He continued to, continues to offer a grace-based, merciful relationship, but he's going to constantly challenge you to grow. Getting in a pattern of saying yes keeps you in that relationship. Getting in a pattern of saying no causes you to stray. Make sense? We're going to talk about the God-directed life, and those are sort of some foundational ideas. and We'll come back to those a lot. I stole this picture from the recent edition of the Adventist Review online, so you know where it came from. This is not my picture. But I like what it says. though we celebrate the importance of our choices, heaven wisely courses the value of his choice. Good life comes from good choices. Good life comes from good choices. CHIP program is about to start. CHIP is all about your health choices, right? The CHIP program, the the, the, uh, Complete Health Improvement Project, you know how your health improves? Making better choices. Making better choices about what you eat, what you do, how you spend your time. Better choices affect your life. Making better choices leads to a better life. Simple as that, right? If, by the way, if you haven't yet uh, signed up for CHIP, is there still availability, Maxine? They can sneak in one more day. Okay, probation closes in one day. Make sure you make that one. So if you get an opportunity, if you, if you really would like to see a dramatic change in your life in lots of different arenas, this is a great place to have that happen at CHIP. So I want to talk about the backstory of Daniel. Most of us know a lot of the stories of Daniel. Most of us have heard about Daniel in lion's den. We've heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their experience in the fiery furnace. We've heard about that image in chapter 2 of Daniel. We've heard lots of bits and pieces about the story of Daniel. But I want to carry you back into the backstory. What was going on before, what's happening before Daniel arrives there. And so I want to, uh, I want to take you back to uh, about 700 B.C. And I want to take you back to the city of Jerusalem. The first time someone attacks the city. Now, understand that Jerusalem has been a city that has not, been, has not fallen throughout its entire history. From the time it was built, from the time that David first established it, it had never fallen in its entire history. And so, the Assyrians are now in control of the world. The Assyrian Empire is the one that's dominating everything. And the third generation of those dominating emperors is our man Sennacherib, who appears in this text. Sennacherib decides that he is going to go down and capture the last remaining stronghold of those Israeli people. He's already taken away the northern tribes. He's already captured Samaria, the stronghold in the north. In fact, he shoots he sends his warriors into Jerusalem or toward Jerusalem from Lekish, which is one of the cities in the northern border of Israel. It's one of the cities where, the, where Tel Dan is and where um, the water just pours up out of the ground to, uh, to begin the establishment of the, of the Jordan River. It's a great place for an army because there's so much water flowing out and it's a lush, nice little place to hang out. So he's sending his, his men there while he stays in Lachish by this nice place to live. It came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So what happened with all the fortified cities of Judah? They were taken. Sennacherib has taken all of them. So he's sort of marching his way through Judah. He's taken up all their, taken all their fortified cities and he's uh, beginning to attack, getting ready to attack Jerusalem. This is Sennacherib's prison, prison, sometimes called Taylor's prison, because Taylor was the one who found it. In the impressions on the side is the story about his, his, his exploits in Judah. And he says of his exploits in Judah, I went and captured all the fortified cities of Judah and I, I, I trust Herod up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Notice what he didn't say about Jerusalem. He didn't say, I took Jerusalem. These kinds of things are advertisements for his authority and his power. These are not places where you talk about being defeated. Okay, So he actually mirrors the biblical story here, saying I took all the fortified cities of Judah and I I captured Hezekiah. I kept him trussed up inside the city like a bird in a cage. Didn't take the city. Didn't capture Hezekiah. I just kept him stuck in there. So Sennacherib verifies this passage that we just read. This is the Assyrian capital. I want you to kind of get oriented because we're going to, come, we're going to be talking about Daniel and Babylon later. But there's the Tigris and the Euphrates. The Tigris is east of the Euphrates. The Euphrates stop, starts up in the mountains there in Turkey, as does the Tigris. And they come down, they join together, and they go into the gulf down past Ur. Okay, Assyria is on the Tigris. Up in the northern territories, in the mountains, okay? Assyria and Nineveh's, Nineveh, its capital, are up there in that northern part. See all that up there? See Assyria? See Nineveh? Not if you get that. Okay, good. Okay. So that, it's in a big yellow box if you're looking for it. That's where we're, what we're talking about. He has come to Jerusalem, which is down in the lower corner. down where the, See the lion that's about to bite? That, that, that's Jerusalem right in front of him. That's where he's coming. Now, understand that Israel is constantly in the position of being tossed around by empires. With Egypt in the south and the empires up to the north and to the east of them, they are constantly this place where nations come through. In fact, Daniel will use the term, they were overrun and passed through, they were overrun and passed through, when we get into those chapters in, in uh, 10 and 11. That idea, Those think of these nations, where they have to go to reach each other. If you're up in Assyria and you want to go attack the Egyptians, guess where you have to go? You either have to go straight across the desert, which no one does, or you have to go through Jerusalem. You have to go through Israel in order to get there. And so usually they would go up into the mountains, follow the Euphrates River, and come down through Syria, Damascus, down the, down the Jordan River, and then attack Egypt. That would allow them to pass through the land, still having enough provisions to make it to Egypt. Egypt. These guys have been passing through Jerusalem for three emperors in a row without capturing Jerusalem. And now Sennacherib comes along and he says, hey, I'm taking Jerusalem. Why are we not taking this little outpost in the middle of nowhere? Why don't we just capture this city? So Sennacherib sends Rabshaka. There's a name for a rock group. Rabshakeh. To deliver the message. Now, there's a much longer message than the one I'm going to give you. I'm just going to give you the gist of it. Just the gist of it. This is Isaiah chapter 36. He says, now, he comes up to the city wall, okay? And he speaks to the envoys of the king, and he speaks in Hebrew. They ask him to speak in Aramaic because they don't want the people on the wall to hear. But he speaks in Hebrew intentionally. In fact, the Bible says he shouts. He speaks loudly in Hebrew, Hebrew. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Beware lest your king tell you your God's going to be better than the other gods. No God has been able to stand this before. Nobody's been able to deliver their people from me. So Hezekiah is at a point now where he has to decide what he's going to do. We're going to go quickly through the story. There's a whole bunch we're skipping. We're up at 37 chapter 1. So it was when King Hezekiah heard it. He heard the threats from Sennacherib. He probably saw the, the army of Sennacherib, which is at least 180,000 strong, gathered around the city. So it was when the king Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. We know of Hezekiah, that Hezekiah is a follower of God. We know of Hezekiah that he's trying to lead a God-directed life. What does this man who's faced with a crisis do when faced with that crisis? This is a pretty existential crisis. The people who want to kill him are outside the city wall waiting to do the deed. They're threatening him and all his people and saying, your God can't protect you. And they're trying to get the people actually to rebel against him. They promised the people 2,000 horses. They said, if you'll just surrender, we'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put men on them to ride them. If you'll just surrender, you can stay in your land. But if you don't surrender, then you're going to suffer the wrath of Sennacherib. Faced with that crisis, he goes to the house of the Lord. Is this your practice? Is this the practice of a person who leads a God-directed life? A person in a God-directed life knows where to find God's direction. In Hezekiah's case, he goes to the house of the Lord. He goes to speak with the priests. He goes to meet the people there. He goes to a place where the voice of the Lord is heard to hear and listen for and discover the voice of the Lord. Right? A God-directed life knows where to find God's direction. A God-directed life knows where to find God's direction. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations in their lands, have cast their gods into the fire, for Gods, but the work of men 's hands, wood and stone, therefore they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from His hand. Does Hezekiah know there's a difference between his gods and the gods of the rest of the people around him? Does he understand that, the, that his God is different, that he 's not just an idol, not just a piece of wood or a stone, that in fact, he is the God of the universe? See, a person who leads a God-directed life begins to discover things about God. We're kind of just laying some foundational ideas about leading a God-directed life here. A person who leads a God-directed life begins to understand some things about God. One, he knows where to go to hear the voice of the Lord. He goes to the house of the Lord. He knows where he can find the voice of the Lord. He knows where he can discover the words of the Lord. Hezekiah also begins to pray, and he prays understanding that his God is different. He knows something about God. He's been in relationship with God and in that relationship he's discovered some things about God. How are you doing with that? Along the road of your walk, your relationship with God, there should be things that you discover about the nature of who God is. One of the reasons I I pound so hard and so often on the idea that our God cares about you, loves you, is trying to get you into the heaven, covers you by his grace, and grants his mercy every morning, is because it states a lot about who God is and how he feels about you. It says a lot about the character and nature of God. And it says he's available in a crisis. He's concerned about you in a crisis. He loves you and wants to help you with that crisis. Just from knowing and understanding the nature of God, you can know that he's on your side in a difficult time. Did he prevent Hezekiah from facing difficulty? Nope. Could God have kept Sennacherib in Assyria? Yep. God could have forced Sennacherib to stay in Assyria and not let him out. God could have taken away the free will and free choice of Sennacherib in order to protect Hezekiah, right? But what do we know about the character of God? We know that God allows man choice and allows man free will. Even men who choose the wrong thing are allowed to have free choice. And here we are. Sennacherib's choice has brought a crisis into the life Of Hezekiah. Somebody in your history, in your time, in your lifetime, has brought crises, brought difficulty into your life by their choice. See, it wasn't Hezekiah's choice to fight Sennacherib. It wasn't Hezekiah's choice to fight Assyria. We will later find one of those kings who goes out to fight against the Egyptian king who shouldn't have, told by the prophets not to go. He went anyway and lost his life, even though the prophet told him to. He made his own choice and caused his own demise. In this case, Sennacherib made a choice that caused a crisis in Hezekiah and Israel's life. Understand that that is the nature of this world in which we live. God does not remove free will from anyone, even people who are making bad choices, even when they affect his children. Because to do anything else is to be a manipulator of men, not a lover of men. And you have to remember in every case, God loves Sennacherib as much as he loves Hezekiah. In every case, he loves the one making the bad choice as much as he loves the person making the good choice. He doesn't differentiate in his love. He differentiates in his response because different responses are needed, but he doesn't differentiate in his love. Isaiah then speaks to him, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city And listen to the next statement. Nor shoot an arrow there. What is he saying? There will not be any offensive weapons used here. There will not be the beginning of a war around this city. There will not be the beginning of an assault around this city. He will not shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same shall he return. So here's what we know about our friend Sennacherib. He does not capture Jerusalem. He in his own stella says, "Well, I I kept Hezekiah I captured in there like a bird in a cage," which means I didn't capture Jerusalem. We know that after coming and facing Jerusalem, he disappears. He goes back home. He goes back to Assyria, back to Nineveh where he came from. And he's then in his he's then in his, in his home for about 2 years and he ends up being killed by one of his sons. One of his other sons ended up becoming king, Esarhaddon, who would eventually lose the kingdom to the Babylonians. But I want you to understand that exactly as described by God, God intervened and saved the people of Israel. God intervened in a crisis on behalf of Israel. Does he do that every time? God does not always intervene and stop the crisis from happening. God does not always intervene and stop the crisis from, com- from coming down on you. In this case, he did. So, we've been talking about Assyria and Nineveh. We're getting backstory for Daniel. We're getting the backstory for what's going on. Jerusalem was attacked by the empire that was the Assyrian Empire. And everything you see there was in the Assyrian Empire, including Babylon down in the bottom and all the way down to Egypt. Jerusalem was paying tribute to the Assyrians, but they had never been captured. And so Sennacherib came to finish them off and do that. The Assyrian Empire will fall to the Babylonian Empire. It takes about 100 years, from 700, when we first saw Assyrians, Sennacherib, attacking them, until we see Nebuchadnezzar showing up outside the city of Jerusalem. From about 700 to 605, then the Babylonians come. Now, if you look at the Babylonians, they have been fighting with the Egyptians. Now, happily for Israel, the big battle against the Egyptians took place up there in the corner at Carchemish. Do you see it up there? see it up there on the river by Haran? Carchemish out there toward the coast, that's where the bat- battle was fought between the Egyptians and the Babylonians. Where'd the Egyptians go from there? Doesn't everybody want to go back to Egypt? They went back to Egypt. So, who then pursued the Egyptians on their way home? The Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies pursue the Egyptians as they head for home, and guess what town is there on the road to Egypt? Jerusalem. And it still hasn't fallen. Sennacherib has written, Ah, yeah, I captured all the cities in Israel and Judah, and I I I I hailed the king in there like he was a bird in the cage, which means I didn't take the city. In fact, if you read the whole story, you find out while Sennacherib was there outside the city, 180,000 of his men died, and that's why he left. Without Israel firing a shot, 180,000 of the, of the most powerful army in the world died. And Sennacherib went home, wisely. Now Nebuchadnezzar comes to this city, and when he comes to the city, this city has been told... For generations by the prophets, this is coming. The prophets have been repeating this for generations, telling them, look, a day is coming because of your unfaithfulness when the city of Jerusalem will fall. A day is coming when you will have, the, you will have to face the repercussions of your decisions and you will fall. Now, Nebuchadnezzar standing outside the city, 605 B.C., so it's about 100 years later. In 605 B.C., the king says to the Babylonians, Sorry, hope we didn't upset anybody. We'll be happy to pay tribute to you. Just don't destroy our city. So they open the gates, let him in. He begins to control it. They begin to pay tribute to him. In fact, he hauls off a bunch of the articles of furniture from the temple. 605 B.C. Okay? He hauls off at that time 10,000 nobles, including Daniel. This is when Daniel ends up in Babylon. Babylon comes calling. 605, the first attack on Jerusalem. Daniel is taken into captivity along with about 10,000 people. Okay? I know a lot of what I'm sharing with you today is just going to be factual, factual, factual stuff. I'm trying to lay a foundation here for some things. Jeremiah begins to write to the kings who stay behind to run the nation because the nation hasn't been destroyed and the, the king has been placed now on the throne by the Babylonian. It came to pass in the fourth year, fourth year of Jehoiakim. He's the king who's been put on the throne by the Babylonians. That the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll of a book and write on all the words I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the day of Josiah even to this day. He says, write down everything I've said to you in the last 19 years. That was a feat all by itself. But he begins to write out the prophecies and he fills the scroll with what he's been saying. And it's not real positive. If you read the book of Jeremiah, which I would recommend during this time, just read it, read it through. There's lots of things to be said, not very many of them positive. There are these moments, there are these windows in Jeremiah over and over again where Jeremiah says, if you would stop resisting and do what God is asking you to do, there's no need for you to be harmed. He says to one of the kings, there's no need for you to die. And there's no need for this city to be burned down. Just surrender. Well, Jehoiakim responds in this way. Oh, wait, I'm not quite ready for him. Now, it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of, Ju- king of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord for all the people of Jerusalem. So he goes and he reads this thing. Actually, he has his servant read it. And a fast is proclaimed. Then Baruch read from the book and at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. So all the people have heard all the things that Jeremiah has said for the last 19 years. It's a long book. They read War and Peace standing out there. (laughs) He reads through all the things he said and most of them are saying, look, do not resist, reform yourself, follow after God, and God will hold back the wrath that could come. But if you don't, this place is going to become a ruin. They will be plowing fields on top of this mountain. There will be weeds growing up on where the temple is. This is the kind of descriptions that are given. reads it, the whole people proclaim a fast. Now they go in to speak to the king. And Jehuda, Jehudi, read it in the hearing of the king. So the people hear it and they proclaim a fast. The leaders hear it. They are the ones who gather the people to hear it. Now they go to the boss man. They go to the king. Now the king was sitting in his winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the hearth before him. He's got his, you know, his little lap, lap blanket on. He's sitting back. He's got a little book. He's all relaxed. Some pillows. Nobody fanning him because it's cold. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth. And every time he read three or four more columns, he cut it and threw it in the fire. And he read a few more columns and he cut it and he threw it in the fire until the entirety of the scroll was burned up. When Hezekiah heard from Isaiah, Hezekiah responded, or when Hezekiah heard about Sennacherib, Hezekiah responded by going to the Lord. He went to the Lord's house, he went to the Lord's prophet, he went to seek the will of the Lord, and he began to pray. When this king, when Jehoiakim hears from the prophet himself, he says, I don't want to listen, 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 I am not going to listen, and he destroys the word of the Lord. Do you see the difference? Pretty stark, right? A God-directed life seeks after God in a crisis, A person who is rejecting God's leadership rejects it further in a crisis. A crisis just brings them to more intense moments of rejection. So in 593, Babylon comes back. The king rebels. The city is attacked again. And Ezekiel is taken along with the rest of the nobles from the land. Happens three times. Now in 586, we've got a new king. His name is Zedekiah. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you surely surrender the king of Babylon, Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live, and the city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. What's what's Jeremiah saying to him? He said, you got a choice here, guy. Surrender. Do what I'm telling you to do. Just surrender to the king of Babylon. By the way, you're you're on strike three. You're two down. you got one left. 605, he took it. 593, he took it. 586, he's back. Let me ask you a question. What are Ezekiel and Daniel doing now? Ezekiel's been taken off. Ezekiel was taken off 13 years before. Daniel was taking off, taken off 19 years before. What are they doing? What do we know about Daniel and the relation, his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar 19 years into this thing? He's the king's number one guy. He is the guy who stands next to the king. He's the king's number one advisor. Do you think he did not know that the king was going on a campaign to Jerusalem? He knew. Do you think it broke his heart? In the meantime, what we, what we haven't read is that Jeremiah has actually sent letters to the people in the, in the exile. Jeremiah has actually said to them Look, you're going to be there for 70 years. Build houses, grow crops, give your children in marriage, grow families, prosper. Pray for the cities that you've been taken to because when they prosper, you will prosper. It sounds treasonous. But God has said to them again and again and again, I am sending Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Do what he says. False prophets pop up, and one of them comes along and says, in two years, we're going to break the yoke of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah says, I hope that's true. Literally, that's what he said. God says to Jeremiah, it's not true. Jeremiah says to this other prophet, God says, you're not telling the truth. And the man ends up dying. Now it's 586 and a new king has seen all of this. He's been there for, he's seen 19 years of this. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord God of hosts, you don't have to die and this place doesn't have to be burned. He refuses. The Babylonians come. And they take the rest of the nobles away and only the poorest of the people are left on the land to till the land, keep it from becoming a barren waste. All the cities are now laying in ruins. Jerusalem has been burned. The temple has been destroyed. The wall is down. A God-directed life is an easier life. A God-directed life is a more blessed life. Resisting the direction of God will leave your life in ruins. It's just true. You're fusing the direction of God will leave your life in ruins. If you surrender to the direction of God, even in the things that you don't want to do, you will find that it is the, less, it is the, the blessed life that you lead. And you will see, standing at the, at the crossroads of death, looking back on your life, through all of your history, where God has walked with you, through all the things you've come to, For God has blessed you and cared for you and watched over you over and over again. This year we're talking about the God-directed life because it's so easy for us to take the reins of our own life and demand that we are the ones who are in charge. We're looking at Daniel because this guy led a God-directed life in a foreign country while the leader, his best friend apparently, was now off in his home country destroying the city he was born in. Leveling it. And yet yet Daniel knew that this was what God was calling on Nebuchadnezzar to do. What about Nebuchadnezzar by 19 years into his reign? By this time, Nebuchadnezzar has been converted himself. And it's probably actually breaking his heart to have Jerusalem destroyed. But the people of Jerusalem continue to fight against him and incite the Egyptians against the Babylonians over and over and over again. Hezekiah goes to the house of the Lord when the crisis strikes. God-directed life. Go to the place where the word of the Lord can be heard when you are looking for a word from the Lord. Seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? He goes to the house of the Lord, seeking a word from the Lord. Hezekiah Hezekiah prays for the intervention of God. He comes and he says, God, I I I don't see this as the outcome you want. I'd like you to intervene. And God intervenes. When Sennacherib comes, God sends him home the way he came. A piece we didn't cover, right after Sennacherib leaves... Hezekiah gets sick. It's chapter 38. Isaiah comes to him and says, Hezekiah, this sickness is to death. Is unto death. You're done. Apparently it's something to do with an infection because Isaiah will later tell them to make a poultice of figs, put it on this thing, and he'll be cured and he'll be healed. God directed him that that's what he should do. Puts his poultice of figs on there and he recovers. When he prays, he asks God to extend his life, to not let him die. God answers and says yes, and he gets 15 more years of life. Great story. Great story. However, you have to be careful when you're on the top of your game. Be careful when you're cruising spiritually. Be careful when your prayers are being answered. Because it's easy to start thinking you deserve that answer. It's easy to start thinking... I got the answer because I'm good. I got the answer because I got my stuff together. Not, I got the answer because I serve a merciful, loving, caring God who's trying to rescue my tarnished carcass and get me into heaven. Hezekiah prays and is given 15 more years on his life. The Babylonians show up to congratulate him for having re- recovered. And rather than pointing them to God, he takes them to his treasury. Hundred years later, they come back for the money. In fact, Isaiah tells them, because of what you've done here today, the Babylonians will be back and they'll take everything you showed them. And they do. Be careful when you're on the top, too. The God directed life. A person seeking God's guidance in their life will find it. A person seeking God's guidance in their life will find it. It won't always be the answer we're looking for. We don't always get yes. We get no, and we get that oh so painful weight. Wait. If God intervenes on our behalf, it's great. When he does, beware the looming cloud of pride. Because when that comes in, we're likely to blow the whole deal. The God-directed life of Daniel begins with him living through two attacks on his home. By the government he works for. And yet he remains faithful to God. And yet he remains faithful to that calling to work in that government. Yet he remains trusting in the God who is allowing Israel to come to its knees. Because Daniel trusts in who God is. The God-directed life is easy. If you know the God who is directing you. Growing in that knowledge is the only thing, is the only thing that will keep you connected through the whole of your walk. This year we're going to talk about the God-directed life. As we do, I just want to lay some foundation on Daniel, see the difference between Hezekiah and these other kings, and recognize that knowing the hand of God is what makes you, makes it possible for us to hold it. Let's pray.